Good morning, Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So the main focus of last week's sermon was sanctification. And we defined sanctification as both being set apart by God for holiness, which is something that has already happened to believers in Jesus, as well as the long process of learning to actually be holy by the Spirit's power. And that's something that is currently happening to believers in Jesus. In fact, sanctification is so important that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul calls it God's will for us. So if you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? That verse gives you quite a bit to work with. And then in the remaining verses that we read, Paul laid out a few practical ways our sanctification should be visible. Number one, our views and our practices of sex. Number two, our brotherly love for each other. And then number three, striving to live godly lives before non-believers. But as important as our sanctification is, which is clearly very important to the Apostle Paul, as important as that is, what happens next? Though it's debated in some theological circles, our church believes that Scripture teaches sanctification as a work in progress, which is never fully completed in this life. You always have more room to grow in becoming like Christ. So then, logically speaking, what would come after sanctification? Well, death. Because sanctification is a lifelong process, if a believer in Jesus no longer needs to be sanctified, that means that they are dead. But then what comes after death? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that eventually resurrection comes after death. And when does that resurrection happen? Well, it happens when Jesus returns. However, the Thessalonians were uninformed about these three things. Death, resurrection, and Jesus' return. And as we'll see this morning, knowing what lies ahead of us, knowing that these three things lie ahead of us, changes how we live now. So open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Feel free to follow along in our Bibles or follow along on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible, take one home. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for Sunday morning. Everything we get to do. Uh, it's so tempting sometimes to view church as something that we have to do. When we wake up and we're tired and we have to get dressed and we have to get the kids ready and gas is not cheap these days and we have to drive to church. But Lord, church is something that we get to do. Uh, and I pray that you would remind us of that. Uh, the great privilege and the great honor and the great joy that we have of being here with brothers and sisters in Christ. Remind all of us of that. Remind me of that 
as well. Uh, What a privilege and joy Sunday morning is. And thank you for your son, Jesus, the one who calls us together on Sunday morning. Uh, But Lord, you also call us together every other day of the week. Lord, thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. Thank you for your death and your resurrection that we remember at communion. And thank you for what we have to look forward to, uh, which we'll talk about this morning. Thank you for your word that we get to read, these songs that we get to sing. Thank you that we have the right and the privilege to pray and approach your throne with confidence. Uh, That is because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Help us not take that privilege of prayer for granted either. And again, just be with us this morning. I ask that this time we have together would be fruitful for us and honoring to you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We saw last week that the church in Thessalonica, as good as it was in so many ways, was not perfect. Paul hinted back in chapter 3, verse 10, that they were lacking in their faith. And here we learn that they were uninformed about something. What were they uninformed about? Well, first, they were confused about the issue of death. Here, death is referred to as sleeping or falling asleep. That was a common way to speak about death in the ancient world. And we see it throughout the pages of the Bible. The Old Testament sometimes refers to a good king's death as sleeping with his fathers. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks about the dead Lazarus as sleeping before Jesus goes to wake him up. When Stephen is killed for his faith in the book of Acts, it says he fell asleep. And in our current day, we still see this idea at work when we say, rest in peace, R.I.P. But how specifically did these Christians get off track in their understanding of death? Well, there are a few possibilities. First, some may have mistakenly believed that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Paul addresses that error in 1 Corinthians 15. It may have been a problem for Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And in the Gospels, we're reminded that some Jewish leaders, known as the Sadducees, didn't believe in any kind 
of resurrection. So they may have gotten off track in their understanding of death because they thought Jesus was still dead. Others may have believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but he might be the only one who gets that privilege. Many Jews believed in a one-time general resurrection for all of God's people. But they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of one person rising first and then other people rising later. That may be why Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, implying that more people would be raised from the dead after Jesus. And still others may have believed that Christians who died before Jesus returned would miss out on special blessings that the living would receive. In other words, if you died before Jesus came back, sorry about your luck. The people who were alive to see it would get more than you do. Either way, this misunderstanding in this church left the Thessalonians uninformed about death, uninformed about resurrection in light of their faith. And this misunderstanding about death, and consequently this misunderstanding about resurrection, wasn't just a matter of theological debate. It affected how the Thessalonian Christians lived. That really comes out in verse 13, if you look back at it. Because these believers were confused about what happens after death. When their brothers and sisters in Christ died, they grieved just like everybody else in the world. They grieved like those who had no hope. Now, Paul is not saying that Christians can't be sad when someone we love dies. That is a cruel and unrealistic way of interpreting and applying this verse. And on top of that, you still have to do something with Jesus himself weeping at Lazarus's tomb. So this is not Paul saying that you can't be sad when a believer in Christ dies. But Paul is saying that Christians should grieve differently. Martin Luther put it this way. He wrote that when a sibling in Christ dies, now, however, he is in a place that he would not wish to exchange for all the world, not even for a moment. Grieve in such a way, therefore, as to console yourselves even more. For you have not lost him, but have sent him on ahead of you to be kept in everlasting blessedness. Again, we as Christians still grieve. But because of who Jesus is and what he has done and what we believe about death and resurrection as a result, we grieve with hope. So the Thessalonians were uninformed and it was affecting their lives. So Paul writes these words to set the record straight. Verse 14, those who die in faith. Because Jesus died and rose again, will be with God. Verse 15, those believers who are alive when Jesus returns will not get special privileges over those believers who have already died. 
and verses 16 and 17 tell us that Jesus will come. All will know when it happens. The dead who believed will rise to welcome Christ. The living who believe will welcome Christ too. And all who believe will be with him together always. With all that in mind, the reality of death should not leave the Thessalonian Christians. Nor should it leave Christians like us feeling hopeless. Rather, a right understanding of death, a right understanding of resurrection in light of our faith can actually be a source of encouragement to us while we live. Again, knowing what lies ahead of us changes how we live. Unlike many non-believers, Christians live with hope, even in the face of death. An ancient pagan philosopher once wrote, Hopes are for the living. The dead have no hope. And while they might not say it so directly, many people today believe the same thing. But that is not what we believe. We grieve with hope, knowing that death didn't have the final say over Jesus, doesn't have the final say over our brothers and sisters in Christ, and won't have the final say over us when it comes our way. We have resurrection to look forward to. But that takes us to the next closely related issue that Paul felt he needed to clarify. What he talked about some in verses 16 and 17 especially. He speaks more in chapter 5 about Christ's return. So starting in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Discussing Christ's return can always be choppy theological waters. So here are a few big principles to keep in mind that I think these verses give us. First, verse 1 tells us that we don't know when Christ will return. We don't know when Christ will return. 
Now, that may seem like a no-brainer. It may seem extremely obvious. In a roundabout way, Paul even indicates that he doesn't think he needs to say this. You have no need for me to write to you about this. Nevertheless, I'm going to write to you about this just in case. Jesus was clear about this in Matthew 24 and 25. He reiterates it in Acts chapter 1, which Joe read earlier. Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's pretty clear. We don't know. We can't know when Jesus will return. Nevertheless, it needs to be said again. We don't know when Jesus will be here. It needs to be said because both then and now, in the ancient world and today, hucksters and frauds try to tell us that they have finally cracked the code about when Jesus will return, and we can find out if we just pay $19.99 for their book. Don't believe them. We don't know when Jesus will return. That's big principle number one. The second big principle comes in verses two and three. When Jesus returns, those who do not believe will face judgment. People will think that all is well, that they have nothing to fear. But judgment will come as swift and as sure as labor pains for a pregnant woman. Paul describes those who do not believe that Jesus will return. Those who do not fear judgment. Those who are not ready. He says they are walking in darkness. They have no idea where they are going. No idea about what lies ahead. And that's judgment. And then the third and final big principle concerning Jesus's return comes in verses four through eleven. That believers must stay ready. We must stay awake. Now, on the one hand, as we said a moment ago, we don't know when Jesus will return. So in a way, we, too, will be surprised. But on the other hand. If we believe what scripture teaches, and if we do what God's word tells us to do, if we stay ready, then we shouldn't be totally shocked when it happens. If we lean again for a moment on Paul's pregnancy illustration that he just gave in verses two and three, think of it this way. If your spouse is pregnant And you've known that for months, you've been to the appointments, you've attended the showers, you have baby-proofed the house, you've painted the nursery, you've done all this work to prepare for this baby's arrival, and then at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, your wife reaches over and shakes your shoulder and says, hey, wake up, we need to go to the hospital. You're going to be surprised in that moment. Even with all that preparation, you're going to be surprised. But you're not going to be shocked. Because you've been ready. Because you've been thinking about this for a long time. 
Because you've been looking forward to this for a long time. In the same way, as children of light, we are to be sober-minded, dressed for action, prepared for the moment of our ultimate salvation when Christ returns. Will we be surprised? Yeah, we will be. Will we be totally shocked? No, we won't be totally shocked. And once again, Paul closes his teaching by telling his audience to use this information to encourage one another. We'll come back to that here in just a moment. But back to our big principle of the morning. Knowing what lies ahead of us changes how we live. If you're approaching retirement, you probably try to save up some money. If you're running a marathon, you probably try to do a little bit of training. If you have to deliver bad news to somebody, you butter them up in advance. It's a simple but profound principle. Knowing what lies ahead of us changes how we live now. And if this is true in the trivial examples that I just mentioned, how much more is it true when we speak of matters of eternal significance? Death, resurrection, Christ's return. As believers in Jesus, we know what lies ahead of us. Though we will one day die, though believers around us will die, we grieve with hope. That's because one day we will rise. And that one day will come when Christ returns. And while we don't know when that day will come, or maybe because we don't know when that day will come, we stay ready. We stay awake. We prepare ourselves for the salvation that Jesus brings. Now, as we wrap up, a few more practical comments, starting with a question. Why is it that we don't prepare for death, resurrection, and Christ's return the way that we prepare for retirement or marathons or vacations or for other things of far less importance. Maybe it's because we think we're immortal or we picture death as something far off in the distance. But we all know that isn't necessarily the case. Maybe we don't prepare for the future because, to be honest, we're pretty happy Maybe even too happy with the way things are right now. We settle for temporal and material blessings that will not last an eternity and forget that our ultimate reward lies beyond this world as we know it. Or maybe we don't prepare because we simply lack faith. We focus all of our attention on the here and now because we don't really believe in the there and then. We take the approach of the hopeless pagans that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. We eat and drink today because tomorrow we die and that's the end of it. Well, as we discussed earlier, that's a mistake. 
Whatever our reason may be, hopefully after reading this text, we will no longer be uninformed about death, resurrection, and Christ's return. And rather, we will be prepared for what lies ahead, which means changes in our lives right now. Well, what kinds of changes? What does it look like for us to live now in anticipation of what lies ahead? Or to put it another way, how do we walk as children of light, children of the day? Paul already gave us the one example. We do not grieve without hope. The thought of our death, the thought of our brothers and sisters in Christ dying is by no means easy. But it doesn't have the same crippling power over us that it once did. We can live with a sense of peace and confidence in the face of death. Another way to live in wise anticipation of our future is to refocus our priorities. In the words of Samuel Johnson, as he was preparing for his own execution, Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. When we remember the inevitability of death, when we look forward to our day of resurrection, when we know that Christ could return at any moment, that has the potential to really reorder our everyday priorities, doesn't it? Maybe we would spend more time discipling our kids, more time laying up treasure in heaven rather than on earth. More time thanking God for the great blessings in store for us through worship and prayer. Our lives might look a little bit different. Our priorities might shift some if we're living as children of light. And finally, living now in anticipation of what lies ahead includes sharing the gospel with those who do not believe. Paul's words about judgment in chapter 5 may sound harsh to our modern ears. But if we actually take scripture seriously and its warnings against unbelief, if we know Jesus' command to go out and make disciples, and if we love the people around us, then how can we not have a sense of urgency to share the gospel with them? It's part of walking as children of light. And finally, twice in today's passage, chapter 4, verse 13, chapter 5, verse 11, Paul speaks about encouragement. You know, to some people, these words sound bizarre or even frightening. You mean to say that you actually believe this stuff that Paul writes? Well... Yeah, we do. And these words aren't meant to scare or intimidate or threaten us. For believers, Paul's words about death, resurrection, and Christ's return, as odd as they might sound, are actually an encouragement to us. We have something glorious beyond compare to look forward to. And that promise is not to be forgotten during the best of times. And it can be an encouragement to help us get through the worst of times. 
Again, knowing what lies ahead of you changes how you live now. And what lies ahead for believers after a life of sanctification? Death, resurrection, and Christ's return. So grieve death when it comes, but do not grieve without hope. Walk as children of light, knowing that you will be raised to live in God's light. And stay ready, knowing that one day Christ will return in power and glory and he will bring our salvation with him. Encourage one another and build one another up with these words. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to read your word. And thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you not just for what Jesus has done for us in the past. We take communion, we drink juice, and we eat bread, and we remember something that happened 2,000 years ago. And that something from 2,000 years ago changes everything for us right now. And it's good for us to look back and remember that. But I also pray that you would help us look forward to what lies in store for us. I pray that looking at death would no longer strike fear in us the way that it once did or it once could. And I pray that we would look forward to resurrection knowing that death is not the end of it for us as believers. And Lord, help us look forward to Christ's return. Whether we die first or whether we're still alive to see it, we don't know when it will come. And so I pray that you would help us stay ready, stay awake, be children of light. Thank you for all you've done for us in the past. But Lord, remind us of what you have in store for us in the future. And I pray that would change how we live right now. Again, so much of the future is uncertain. We're not even 100% sure that we're going to make it home today. But some things are certain. Some things are sure. And those are the promises that you give to us in your word. And I pray these words, these promises would be a source of hope for us, a source of peace and confidence and comfort, and a source of encouragement to us. To continue following you until we die or until you return. Lord, again, we love you. We praise you. Thank you that all of these promises are ours because you died and you rose and you will return. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.